Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. We're in a series entitled, Are We There Yet?, dealing with the book of Exodus. And today, talking about idol crushing, this is a very well-known passage that we're going to discuss today. And I'm going to ask if you'd stand, please, for the reading of the Lord's Word. Reading out of Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 4, when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, who's his brother. Come on, they said, make us some gods weird. Make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down and molded it into the shape of a calf. The people saw it. They exclaimed, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Father, make real your word to us today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As I said, this passage is well-known, in fact, so well-known, um, at least in times past, that I was tempted to kind of move past it other than just referencing it briefly. But in a time that is of increasing biblical illiteracy in our country, um, I'm realizing that, that there's many um, who have not understood this passage, and those even who have heard of it before may not have understood it. And even those who have heard it and understood it, it's really critical that we come back and and take hold of this a little bit again. The people of Israel have come out of Egypt. Um, They've had some incredibly miraculous things happen, the parting of the Red Sea, um, manna from heaven, uh, all sorts of miraculous things. They've now come to Mount Sinai, and as we said last week, the delivery of of the Ten Commandments, and God begins to talk about the expectations, and um, he gathers them there at this place, and it's, 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 there's, there's thunder and lightning and it's all very, very frightening. Um, some of you know that song, others forget it. Um, and so they're gathered here and I, I gave you a snapshot last week of the mountain. Uh, this is an updated picture that I took there earlier this year. And so this is Mount Sinai and I, I, I'll let that hover for a moment there um, as we begin to dive into this a little bit deeper. With all this terrifying moment, we said last week how the book of Hebrews, the New Testament, uses this as a foundational statement, but then says we don't come to that mountain, this terrifying place of the law. We come before what is now referred to as Mount Zion. We come to worship before God. And I've heard one writer put it this way, that when we gather like this, we're literally coming into a heavenly realm, that we're, we're literally coming with an access to God, an engagement with God that even those in the Old Testament wouldn't have quite grasped or understood. And so this is something of note because we can be casual, and, and I'm okay with you know, the dress, the style, whatever else the case is, but we should never be casual about approaching God. 
We need to remember this is the God who shook Sinai. And while we now come to a place of grace, it's important that we understand the foundations of what brought us that grace. So we get the context of this. And to do that, we need to go to Exodus 24. Um, chapters beforehand. Uh, God said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain. He'd already read to them the law. And they said, now stay here and I'll give you the tablets of stone on which I've inscribed the instructions and commands so that you can teach the people. So Moses and his assistant Joshua set out. Moses climbs up the mountain of God. And Moses told the elders, stay here, wait for us till we come back. Aaron and her, they're with you. If anyone has a dispute while I'm gone, consult with them. So he kind of puts those guys in charge, Aaron particularly. And Moses climbs up the mountain, and the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled down on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it um, for six days. On the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from inside the cloud, and to the Israelites at the foot of the mountain, the glory of the Lord appeared at the summit like a consuming fire. So again, very scary stuff. Then Moses disappeared into the cloud as he climbed higher up the mountain. He remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Um, that original picture that I gave you, if we'll go back to that for a moment, you can see the ruggedness of the terrain and the height of the mountain. Um, the next shot here gives you a sense of approaching it. The, the initial climb, if you will, isn't that hard. It's really a walk, and you can do that pretty easily. Um, but then it gets progressively more difficult. Um, this is actually one where I was going on the way back down, but you get the sense of how steep that is, even coming up out of that flat area. Now it's getting more challenging. And then the final level is like this, and recognize this has been placed by people, so before this it would not have been as accessible even as this very steep climb. And so Moses is, is called deeper in, and there's a whole thing we could talk about, about entering into relationship with God that can start in this easy kind of ground, but as we get along, it gets a little more challenging and, and higher up and deeper into who God is, and we're not going to discuss that today, but just as a side thought for you for a bit here. And so he journeys through this valley, he gets into this climb, and then the scripture says, he's gone for 40 days and 40 nights. Now this 40 thing is something we've seen before. We've seen it with Noah and, and, and for 40 days and 40 nights of rain. We see it later on in the New Testament with Jesus who has 40 days of temptation um, in the desert. Um, this sense of 40 being something of completeness seems to be an important element that God introduces into things. But it's 40 days 40 nights, and the people are at the base, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. Now, they've seen the parting of the Red Sea. They've seen manna from heaven. They've seen literally meat in the way of quails dropping from the sky. They've seen the 10 plagues of Egypt completely counter all the gods of Egypt. And they've seen this terrifying moment of God talking to them of what he expects of them with these Ten Commandments. They've seen all those things, and it's a fearsome, fearsome thing. And I would suggest to you, as another side point here, that if your whole relationship with God is fear-based, that that will only take you so far. That will only take you so far. And for many of those people... That's exactly what it was. And so they begin to wonder down there in this fearsome moment, and, and Moses is gone, who they kind of counted as the intermediary between them and God. And, and the question is, is, is he ever coming back? Uh, 
where do we do? Where do we go from here? Who's in charge? Well, well, there's Aaron, but Aaron is no Moses. So what are we going to do? What's, what's going to take place here next? Well, meanwhile, up on top, in Exodus 31, verse 18, the Lord finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, and he gave him the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant that were literally written by, the scripture says, the finger of God. Stone tablets with God's own handwriting. You should hang on to those, Moses, because that's going to be worth some big bucks in the future. You know, I mean, that's, that's unique. And um, it goes on and continues. What happens after that portion, I won't read to you because it's multiple chapters. As, as Moses and God are up there and they're, they're con- talking and he's laying out all sorts of guidelines for the people and, and codes and the ways of living and how we're going to engage and, and how we're going to interact. It goes on for chapters and chapters and chapters. Meanwhile, the people are still waiting. They're waiting and they're waiting. How do we handle a situation where we're waiting? How do we handle things when, when our expectations aren't being met, then the promotion's not coming in the time we think, the relationship's not progressing to where it should be, our 401k is not advanced to where we think for retirement or whatever engagement is, the house we're not getting. What, what's happening when we're doing? Realize all these people had to do, all they had to do, they were not given a great powerful task. They only had one thing to do, and that was nothing. <laughs> nothing. Yes, wait. Yes, waiting. But it was nothing. Just don't do anything, guys. Just, just don't do anything, okay? Just, just chill. That's all you have to do. But because their relationship was predominantly fear-based, it wasn't based yet with an intimate knowledge of who God is, something that we have today. They begin to let the fear ride. We don't do that when we're really having a situation stretch out long and we're waiting. We don't let that drive us, do we? It did for them. And so it says at one point in time that they demanded and they said, give us a God. Make us a God. Later on when they were in Israel and they established the land, they had been ruled by judges, um, people who were direct prophets really from God. And so God, it was a type of theocracy, if you will, ruled by God. They didn't like that either. They, they wanted a, a king like other countries. They wanted someone with a face, again, something they could touch and feel. So they asked for a king. And so the time of the judges ended and the time of the monarchy begins. It doesn't turn out too well. There's this demand that we constantly have to have something tangible, something we can control, something we can touch, something we can hold on to. So back to our text in Exodus 32, it says, when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down, they gathered around Aaron, come on, make us some gods. Give us a God who can lead us. The the oxymoron of that statement, make us a God. (laughs) We don't know what happened to this fellow um, who brought us out. So Aaron says, take the gold rings from the ears and, 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 and bring it to me. And he melts it all down. He puts it in the shaped line. He says, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. And they make a calf, which was a type of, of thing they would have been 
familiar with is an image back in Egypt. No matter how far they get from Egypt, they can't seem to get Egypt out of their system. That dominant culture and that way of thinking and that whole process continues to mess in their head. It says in Exodus 32 um, that he builds an altar and and so he now is completely surrendering to the people. Is he doing it out of fear that he's afraid they'll do something to him? Um, he enters into a type of syncretism because he calls them and says, this is to, um, we're going to have a time of, of, of worship, if you will. And he ties the, the word of the Lord, the name of the Lord to this calf. Maybe he's trying to keep them somewhat focused. Maybe he's fearful. Either way, it ends up with something called syncretism, which is blending Christian belief with another belief, which means you don't have a real belief any longer. It's no longer Christianity. There's a new religion in our country called progressive Christianity, and it's not Christianity. It may be progressive, I don't know. But it's not Christianity. It's a blending and a syncretism. A lot of things increasingly we're seeing within politics and other things are a blending of these items, and it lacks the purity of worship. And so as all this thing is, is happening and, and there, there's an altar built and the people get up early the next morning and, and uh, um, they, they begin to engage in what's called pagan revelry. The implication is they get drunk. They're having some wild sex parties going on. There's also, which was part of the ancient worship style of, of, of the worshiping of idols. All this break on the people, it's basically Israel gone wild. They've just gone nuts. So at one point in time, um, uh, the Lord says to Moses, quick, go down the mountain. Your people have corrupted themselves. How quickly they've turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They've melted down gold, made a calf, and they've bowed down and sacrificed to it. And they're saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord talks about their stubbornness, and, and, and basically he's saying, you know what, I'm, I'm done with these people. I mean, we did, we did the whole parting of the Red Sea deal. We gave them some food to eat. We've given them water. We've we done all these miracles, and they're still doing this kind of stuff. I'm done. Tell you what, Moses, I'm going to take you and we'll work something out here and we're going to build something around you and your people as a new place. But these people, I'm going to wipe them out. Moses intercedes. And we won't go through the intercession. We won't go even the, there's some heavy implications about this for another conversation. But there's some intercession and, and there is a change. And so God decides not to wipe them out. So instead he says, okay, you need to get down there and fix this then right now. So he starts going on down that climb, down the mountain. And along the way, he picks up Joshua. And this is really important because Joshua becomes an important figure later. And it's interesting to note, Joshua was not in the camp. Don't know what would have happened if he'd been there because Joshua's a, a pretty significant leader. But if you think about all these people here, and then you think of Joshua, Joshua's halfway, three quarters of the mountain. We don't know how far up the mountain he is, probably up until that maybe final climb there. And so for 40 days, these people have all had each other to console and talk and think. And, and Joshua's been totally alone, but he's stayed faithful. Totally alone. Maybe, it, maybe it's better sometimes to be alone. Maybe it's better sometimes to be alone. We don't like that. But compared to the company we could end up keeping and how they could shape our thinking, perhaps that was a factor. But either way, Joshua stays faithful. And he's waiting for Moses no matter how long. And so um, they gather together and they're coming on down. And Joshua at one point hears this loud shouting and everything going. He says, he says, it sounds like war in the camp. Somebody's attacking us and everyone's screaming, you know, or maybe they just want a victory. And Moses replied, no, it's not a shout of victory. It's not a wailing of defeat either. 
He says, what I hear, I hear the sound of celebration. In other words, I'm hearing some pretty heavy um, partying going on. So he comes down there together, Joshua and Moses, and they see how the people have lost their minds, their hearts, their spirits. Moses sees this calf, and he begins to burn with anger. And remember we said Moses has a little bit of an anger problem. He murders somebody one time. There's going to be another issue later we're going to see with it. But in this case, it's a righteous anger. It's an appropriate anger. God has the same anger at times. You have to be careful with anger. It can bite you bad if you don't manage it and if it's in the wrong purpose. But in this case, it's righteous. And when God has a righteous anger um, over something that would pull us away from him or that would, that would tear us down or damage us, it's a righteous anger. Moses is caught with this whole righteous anger. And so in, in Exodus 32, verses 19 and 20, says, when they came near the camp, Moses saw the calf and the dancing, and he burned with anger. And he threw the stone tablets to the ground, smashing them at the foot of the mountain. Moses, don't do that. There goes your entire eBay account right there. Dude. But he can't. He's just so overcome there. Some rabbinic thought says that, that because it represented a type of marriage covenant, that if the people had accepted that, there would have been this marriage, that he smashed it because it's better for them to be treated um, like an unmarried partner who's gone astray than a married partner. That's rabbinic thought. All we know in Scripture is he was so horrified at what he saw that after all these miracles, the people had done this, that he can't contain himself. He, he throws them down. doesn't stop there. He says then in verse 20, Exodus 32, he took the calf they had made and he burned it. Okay, that's good, cool, fine, burn it. He's not done. It says he ground it into powder. Okay, you got your point across, Moses. Then he took the powder that had been burned and ground and he threw it into water. Whatever, Mo, all right? And then it says in the final portion, you can see it, he forced the people to drink it. He was intense. He's serious. What is he doing with this? He could have gotten rid of it. In other words, he's sitting here saying, you think, this, you think this new style of worship, you think these gods are good, good for you? Does this taste good to you? How does this taste, this new worship, this new gods, you're fine? How do they taste? Is this any good to you? Is this anything near as satisfying as what God has been already to you and would be? He's making a point that's incredibly extreme. He goes on in, in chapter 32, verses 21 and 24, because then he turns to Aaron. You know, Aaron's been lurking in the background. Aaron's kind of lying low. Aaron's kind of getting ready to take, you know, an Avis car to some other location because he doesn't want to be addressed by this. Turns to Aaron and he demanded, what did these people do to you to make you bring such terrible sin upon them? Please, Aaron, tell me. What, did, they, did they pull out your fingernails one by one? Did they beat you with rubber hoses, bro? I mean, please, what did they do to you? I'm so concerned. And Aaron's like, well, uh, nothing. He says, don't get upset, my Lord, Aaron replies. You yourself know how evil these people are. These are evil people. 
They said to me, make us gods who will lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So I told them, I said, okay, okay, whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. When they brought it to me, I simply threw it in the fire. And bro, out came this calf. It was amazing. I mean, all I did was throw the gold in. And, I mean, <laughs> I can imagine Moses sitting here and he's just been with God. And he's like, are you serious? saw that Aaron had let the people get completely out of control. Talks about the gods of gold that they'd made for themselves. And then they get to another controversial point that we'll explore at some other time. But there's a cleansing in the camp. 3,000 people are killed that day. There's an issue about God's holiness that, that gets to be addressed in this moment of time. And there's other places in Scripture where we see this type of physical killing in the Old Testament, and it's a controversial issue. People say, wait, how could God dictate all that? Again, that's something we will address. It's not for a conversation today, but it's something we do need to come to because many people have stumbled over that. They continue to have an issue as far as idols are concerned throughout their history still. Uh, later, and when they establish kings, as I said, um, Saul's the first king, David's the next, and then he has a son named Solomon. Solomon dies there. He has a son named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam is ready to take over, um, but he seeks counsel from the old and the young. And the old people say, look it, go easy, and they'll follow you. His own generation says, nah, tell him how tough you are. Be a tough guy. And he listens to his own generation. And there's a danger, whether we're old or young, to listen to just our own generation and not taking in other perspectives. And so when he gets tough, they walk away. Ten of the tribes walk away. They follow a guy named Jeroboam. So Rehoboam still has, has Jerusalem in that location. They're another section of the country. And so you find that in 931 B.C. it happens. Um, Jeroboam says, look, unless I'm careful, the kingdom is going to return to the dynasty of David. And these people go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices to the temple. They're going to again give their allegiance to King Rehoboam. They're going to kill me and make him king instead. So 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28. Check this. So on the advice of his counselors, the king made two gold calves. He said to the people, it is too much trouble for you to worship in Jerusalem. Just looking out for you here. Look, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. He echoes the same thing. He makes two gold calves again. It goes on um, in verse 29. He basically placed these at Bethel and Dan at either end of his kingdom. Um, and the people went to worship it. In other words, he says, look at this worship of God at his temple is, is inconvenient for you. Let me make worship convenient for you. Let me make a live stream. I mean, let's put these two calves at two different extreme ends. And so you can sit in your own living room and never have to go into a church again. No, I love the live stream. I appreciate it. I think there's some great things. It's being streamed right now, and there are people who are sick. There are people who are traveling. There are people who have complex situations in their life, and that's what they're doing, and this is appropriate, and that's good. But then there's others of us who it just becomes convenient. The worship of God is not always convenient. He goes that way. In Acts chapter 15, they're dealing with new Gentiles coming into what was predominantly a Jewish church at that time. And they're trying to make that entry point, like the going up the mountain, that first entry point, easy. It's not denying the rest of the mountain. It's just trying to make that opening part easy and for good fellowship. And so in Acts chapter 15, to the new Gentiles coming, he says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit to us to lay no greater burden on you than those for requirements. 
You have to abstain from eating food offered to idols, so no idol worship. Consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, because the Jewish people had dietary things, that would just gross them out if they're sitting next to somebody in the church potluck and they're doing this. And the last thing was sexual immorality. Don't do that either. It's not ignoring all the rest. It's just saying, let's start with this though at least. This issue of idol worship all the way down, this idea of convenience, this idea of, 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 of not waiting upon God, but trying to create something else that we can control that has more meaning to us. The, the writer later, as they're established in the land of Israel, the psalmist in Psalm 106 echoes back to this in trying to make a point, and he says in Psalm 106, 19, the people made a calf at Mount Sinai. They bowed before an image made of gold. And then this, Look at his language here. They traded their glorious God for a statue of a grass-eating bull. They forgot their God, their Savior, who'd done such great things in Egypt, such wonderful things in the land of Ham, such awesome deeds at the Red Sea. Look at the language here. Glorious of God. Wonderful. Awesome. Great things. They forgot God, their Savior. There was a point where they lost track. This, this, you know what's great about this is we don't deal with this because you and I, we are patient people. <laughs> really, we are. Remember that when you pull out of here in your car. Um, I've had two close accidents in the last week. Just this last week, both got my heart pumping. Both times people pulled out suddenly in front of me. I mean, just, just like out of nowhere. Just, I don't know if they didn't see me. I don't know if they were looking the wrong way, but they pulled out. One of them, I had to literally swerve around to get around. I was, it was on Romeo Plank. I'm doing 50, which is the speed limit. And I swerved around. I expressed my affection with my horn as I did that. Um, but I'm sitting here going, and the other one was this morning, coming here this morning. Someone did the same thing, just pulled right out in front of me. But we... You and I, we're, we're patient people. We're not like these guys. We would wait upon God. We would remember everything he's done for us. We wouldn't forget that. The last thing we would ever do, ever, 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 is to make some type of a golden calf. I mean, especially today. Come on, that's a little absurd, isn't it? I mean, isn't it? Jeff Brown, our family life pastor, a couple of weeks ago taught on this. We've synchronized our things a little bit. He told me afterwards what he did, and I thought it was interesting. I thought I'd share it with you. And, um, he did the lesson, the golden calf. He gave them gold Play-Doh and asked them, basically after reading the story, to break into groups and to use the Play-Doh, the gold Play-Doh, to make something that may be considered an idol that is sometimes placed before God in their daily lives. Now, we didn't have enough gold Play-Doh today, so I didn't do that, all right? But this is what's interesting. He said the results were this. He says many of the, the kids made iPhones. We're talking kids under 12. These are kids that are under 12. Made iPhones. Others of them made TVs, sometimes with the entire family sitting there watching it. One child created a bed out of Play-Doh because they worship sleep. That one I understand. <laughs> he said there were plenty of great ideas. He said, I want to share with you that without prompting, they understood their own golden calves. Do we? 
Do you understand the golden calves? Do we understand the golden calves that are in our lives? For some of us, we have an entire herd. I want you to do something for a moment. If you have a wallet or a purse, take out a bill. I don't care if it's $100, $10, $5. Take whatever bill you got. $1, whatever you got. Just take it out for a minute. Just bear with me. I promise. Nothing weird. All right? Just take out a bill. Whatever you have. All right? Now, hand to the person next to you. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> He's got 100 No, what I want you to do is simply this. I'd like you to look on the back of the bill. And as far as I know, every single bill has this. It'll say at the top, the United States of America. And then it has a motto, a four-word motto. It says what? In God we trust. In God we trust. The first time that was placed on anything was um, Civil War. I think it was 1864 or so. It was on a two-cent coin. It got to be so popular as something for the country at that time that they wanted to put it broader. It wasn't until, I think, 1956, probably under Eisenhower or so, that it became on all of our money. In God we trust. It is said, according to history, that this was to imply or say state that the political, notice this, the political and economic prosperity of the nation is in God's hands. That's why we did it. Not just the economic, but the political was to be the prosperity of the nation in God's hands. Now, um, you can take it, you can put it back in, or just leave it on the floor and we'll pick it up later. You can put it away. You sit here and go, why? Why is this thing still, with all the challenges to, to Christianity and all the issues here, why? Well, there's been many attempts to remove it. You know why it doesn't get removed? Because it's been deemed by the courts as something called ceremonial deism. Ceremonial deism means that it's, it's merely a cultural ritual. It is not inherently religious. In other words, it's not actual worship. It's just something that due to long customary usage, we do or we say. But it has no real meaning. So with that, not to get too dirty hairy and not to call you punks, but you got to ask yourself, what is it that you actually believe in? Is your relationship with God fear-based or is it based on a knowledge and understanding? Do you still huddle at Sinai or are you walking freely on the grounds of Zion? What is it that you actually believe in? Are you here today, whether in present now or by a stream or by atrium or whatever else, strictly out of some ceremonial action that has no real action of worship? What are the calves actually that dominate your lives? Is your whole belief and following of God strictly out of convenience? You're a human being like me. What is your worship like? What are your golden calves? Money? You need it. 
you should pay attention to it. We're told to be good stewards, but you shouldn't love it. Maybe it's politics. Increasingly, you want a king that will lead a charge. You should be politically involved, but not to the point where your faith rises or falls on it. Or family. I see people surrendering critical scripture because it doesn't live up to what they're seeing a family member decide or be. I'm not attacking anyone. I'm simply saying what happened, and it can happen to us, and it does. We hide. We shove those things that we truly worship, family, money, politics, sex, pornography, whatever. We shove those things down. And some of them are good things, and we shove them down, but we lean on that. And God says to Moses, you need to get down there because those people are going crazy. In 1 John 5.21, in the New Testament, John wraps up his book by this line, little children, keep yourselves from what? Idols. The New Living Translation breaks it down a little clearer. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. Anything that might take your God's place in your hearts. I love my family, but God help me, that should not come before God. I plan for finances and stuff, but that should not come before. I love my car. It's a 2009 Pontiac G8 GT, 365 horse. It's beautiful. I've had it since it was a baby. I love that car. It's the nicest car I've ever owned. But sometime that car is going to rust away. Oh, say it ain't so. <laughs> but it will. It will. I'm going to share something that I've not been given permission to, but I don't think it'll be a big issue, hopefully. <laughs> some of you know Kevin Reynolds, some of you don't. Kevin's son was playing last week or so. Kevin played drums for me years back when he was very young. I think Kevin's traveling today. I don't think he's in the building. <sighs> if so, he'll correct me on this one, on this one part. We had a Sunday evening service one time back when the church was much smaller. So there was maybe 85 of us, 100 of us in this church on a Sunday night worshiping. Kevin was playing drums for us as a young person at that time, 20-something probably, late teens. He had a car that he had just, Kevin loves cars. He still loves cars. He just loves them. He knows more about cars than anyone I know. And he had this car, I'm trying to remember, I can't remember, if if I hear it, I'll know what what it is, but I want to say it's a Chevelle, but it's not a Chevelle. But it was one of the the muscle cars, one of the original muscle cars. Kevin, what was it? What was it? it was, no, it was not. Really? Okay, so he had this car. But it was a good, but it was a sharp car. That thing was, that, that thing was sharp. And it was, I don't know if it was the first deal you were going to make ever, but it was one of those at least. And he'd sold it, but had not actually transitioned to getting the papers over and the money. So he's here worshiping with us that night. And while we're worshiping, somebody comes in and says, hey, there's a car on fire in the parking lot. So we come on out and realize it's Kevin's car. And so he just saw this deal literally going up in smoke. And Kevin loves cars. And so I just figured this was the end of the service. It's going to be a traumatic break. We have to take him to counseling, therapy, all sorts of stuff maybe. Kevin was the first one to lead us back. He says, well, we might as well worship. Nothing to be done about it now. He goes back and he leads us in worship. That was decades ago, and I've never forgotten that night. What are your golden calves? What are mine? What happens when the waiting gets long and you sit here and realize 
it's going to go longer and longer. What are your calves? Something that you have no business praising. The children of Israel waited, and then they couldn't wait any longer. And so they fell into something that was grotesque, especially considering what they'd already learned and seen of God. What if instead, what if instead, what if instead, what if instead the children of Israel had waited? What if when the promotion doesn't come, the relationship's not going where you want, the health thing isn't changing, whatever the scenario it is that you're waiting for, what if instead they, you or I, had leaned into God instead of trying to create something else to end their insecurities? What if our relationship with God is not based upon fear, but it's based upon a knowledge of his love and grace? What if we understand we're not standing at the foot of Sinai with a thunder and lightning and all the fruit? We stand in the presence of God with grace and forgiveness, love and provision. And that if we're waiting, there is a reason for that wait. Because we can have confidence that God loves us and cares for us. What if instead, what if, The golden calf scenario is one of the most well-known portions of Scripture. It's always nice to sit here and think about those poor, silly Israelites. How foolish. What are your golden calves? Is your relationship with God fear-based or based on understanding? And when you're caught in a moment of wait and delay, what is your response? To find something else to worship and allay your concerns or do you lean in? Do you lean in even further to God? Do we trust in God? Even when it's not convenient. Father, this morning we come before you as a people And I pray, Lord, that we would not stand here condemned, but I do um, open up the possibility, Lord, of conviction. If children can understand their own calves and see it, how much more so should we as adults? For those of us who have operated in fear, can there be a change in that to an understanding and to love? And Lord, in the moments when we are waiting, can you find, can we find, can we find a patience of a Joshua that even while everything shakes around us even while others take off and parting in other directions that we stand that we stand this morning Father I pray that just even this song would give us some understanding of a strategy that we could employ that chapter of Israel's story is over and done. But yours and mine isn't. There'll be a time when there's been a delay. Uh, expectations haven't been met. 
and you're going to have to make a decision. And at some point in that midst or after that point, God's going to meet with you. And as he's coming down the mountain, is he going to hear the worship of calves and the parting that goes with that? Or is he going to hear the praise of God? What will he hear in our lives? And then finally this, what again are the calves in your life? I don't say that with condemnation, but as you leave this place today, let that be a point of conviction. Let God root those things out. Crush them down, grind them down. Um, You don't have to drink it. But let it be worked out. There'll be those for prayer here afterwards, if you'd like to pray. And then next week, as I said, um, it's going to be a very interesting time with our baptismal service. So join us for that. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you, Lord, that we don't stand on the mountain of Sinai, that we stand on the mountain of Zion, that we stand in your presence, Lord God. And as much as that grace is there, Father, we also underlie, understand the underlying foundation of the law that was behind that. And so we are all the more appreciative and to worship you without license, but freely and out of love and not fear. Guide us to apply these things in our life, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask these things. And the church would say, amen. Amen.